Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The Voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. And talking to a Cook and Festival spoken word organiser. Hello, I'm Heather, and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself this week, sponsored by the Little Bookshop in Cookham. Good morning, Julian. How are you today? I'm very well. Right, I'm sorry, you'll have to say that again. Good morning, Julian. No, I still can't hear you. Let's try that again. Good morning, Julian. Hello, Heather. Hello, can you hear me? I can indeed. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> We're going to have to get this sorted out, aren't we? This is not uh, we working are, we at are, the yes. moment. You'd think we've only been doing it since yesterday, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it feels like all my life. <laughs> right, anyway, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well. I'm very well indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Smashing. And thank you all for joining us today. Every week, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy, from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading, or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. You're listening to River Radio and Turning Pages, and of course that's never been easier as we are now broadcasting on DAB. And my, and my husband was listening to us on in the car, and it was very exciting Ooh. the other day. I know, he should have been there at home listening intently, but instead he was out gallivanting, I don't know. But there you are, in the car, it's fantastic. So you can also listen to River Radio at almost any internet-connected device, as you know, as you're listening to us now. So we're on every Wednesday between 11 and 12, and we're also repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3. So if you want to catch up on any past programmes you've missed, then you can listen again directly either from the website, and Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. So you just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. We, and this is my weekly call to you all out there. We do really want to uh, hear from you. So please do drop us a line um, if you've got anything to say, anything to share with us. My email address is julian at river.radio. So please do get in touch. Yes, that would be great. So as always, we've got a fun-filled hour designed just for you this week. So we're exploring the reading trends to look out for for next year. And now that spring has sprung, Heather, we'll be looking at spring in books. Absolutely. And we've got John Castell, who's responsible for the spoken word part of the Cookham Festival. And he'll be joining us to chat about his favourite elements of the festival. 
And now, and to, 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 to start the show, we have been scouring the newspapers as we do every week to spot interesting book news for you. So let's get a start with a quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently. Okay, now I'm going to start with Ali Smith, who's one of my favourite authors. And she's just completed uh, a series called Seasonal Quartet, which, as you can imagine, were four series entitled mm-hmm. Spring. Summer, autumn, Summer, winter. Oh, now let me guess. If the, oh, you've, you've told me I was oh, going no. to guess. Oh, I'm it. sorry. Yes. Yes. I was going to call it winter. Yes, <laughs> but actually, interestingly, a surprising and unexpected fifth novel has joined Ooh. the quartet, and it's called Companion Piece, and it looks as though it's part of the same uh, same series. It's got that lovely David Hockney cover, and. Um, it's uh, jumped straight in to the uh, into the charts into the bestsellers list the week of its uh, publication, as you would expect with Ali Smith. And it's one of those books that she's written and published really quickly, so it's about as real time as novels get. And Ali Smith draws parallels between our age and the time of the Black Death. And it's a beautiful, mysterious novel, which is her twelfth novel, and thoroughly recommended. Oh, right. Sounds very interesting. Now, here's a little bit of an item that I know will really uh, please Mrs. Joy Pennells, who's one of our regular listeners in Seven Oaks, because it's not often that poetry books make it on the bestseller list. And Joy is a great fan of poetry. But the literary superstar, a young man called Ocean Vuong, has managed it with Time is a Mother, which is his second poetry collection. Now, he's an American poet, and his last uh, poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds won the T.S. Eliot Prize and his 2019 debut novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, was a bestseller on the Sunday Times list too. Now, he arrived as an immigrant in in America from Vietnam with his family uh, and he he was from a a very humble background um, working in nail bars and factories. But somehow he's really adopted his second language and made it his own, um, winning numerous awards um, for his work. And the poem in Time is a Mother explores grief, the meaning of family and the value of joy. I've got to say, fantastic author, fantastic poet. And he is, so he's done two poetry books and a novel. And the novel has just garnered so many awards and recommendations. really. Absolutely fabulous. So I think this is certainly someone to to look out for in the future Mm. as well. So I was reading an amazing serialisation of a biography in the Times newspaper over the weekend. And we don't really recommend uh, biographies that much. But this one is about Steve Thompson, who's an ex-England rugby player. And I'm finding it fascinating. The title is called From Unforgettable, Rugby, Dementia and Their Fight and the Fight of My Life. And it chronicles how the rugby family saved uh, Steve Thompson's life by giving him a family because he had quite a, a rough upbringing. And um, it gave, so it gave him a family in the focus when he was young. But it also talks about the difficulties he now has as he has early onset dementia. He's only 43 and oh he's got four little children, so like nine, seven, five and three. And uh, he now can't remember anything about his World Cup win in 2003, nor of the birth of his children. So that's an amazing fight he's got on his hands. And um, 
it seems to be a really important book because it just talks about the challenge, the dangers that this sport has and how small changes in the game that have happened over his lifetime have had just sort of unconsidered consequences on the lives of the players. I always used to like watching rugby. So you know when they do the line-up and, mm. uh, for the, the national anthem, and you have really tall boys and small mm. boys and big boys and slim boys, and it seems to sort of cater for everybody in our nation. Yeah. And now everyone seems to be really quite big and tough and broad and and solid and of course that's having a huge impact when you when you uh, um when you attack and uh has a huge impact on uh, mm. on the opposition so i think that it's a really interesting uh, story dementia obviously is something that is very prevalent in society it's only going to increase so we need to uh develop our knowledge of it as much as possible. And I also fear the family's going to need all the money they can get from this publishing deal to cope with the care, care challenges ahead. So we should all rush out and buy the book. Indeed, indeed. Now, the uh, my, my piece is um, about one of the most ingenious um, plans that was ever hatched during the Second World War called Operation Mincemeat. Uh, and it is now out in the cinemas. Uh, and it's uh, this, is, in fact, is, is, is a, a reissue of the film, if you like, because there was one uh, originally made in the 1940s with Clifton Webb playing Ewan Montague. But this one stars Colin Firth playing Ewan Montague and Matthew McFadden. And it's a real-life spy story story um, set during the Second World War um, and it was basically um, about the film um, the original film was called um, The Man That Never Was and that's really important to, to bear in mind but it's a, it's a, a really inspired um, um, brilliantly written book um, by this by the same name of Operation Mincemeat the true spy story that changed the course of World War Two. and it was written by Ben McIntyre. Now uh, Ben McIntyre is not only an award-winning author but he's a journalist uh, that worked for the times um uh, he's also a um uh, as a historian he appears to specialize in finding great spy stories to bring to our attention and john banville uh, writing for the guardian describes him as a writer with the diligence and insight of a journalist and the panache of a born storyteller have you read any have you Pardon? read any have you read any of uh, ben mcintyre's books I haven't. No. I've got to say, they are brilliant. They they read like a novel. So you don't. You know, really, you, really, yeah. you can't believe that it's all fact because he's a serious historian. It's they're fabulous. So yeah. uh, I know this is on tele, uh, on the film, but you should go back to the book. To the book, yes, yeah. I'll put that on my list. Yeah, well, well worth it. Now I've got a great story, and it was spotted on the BBC News uh, website. And it's about the anniversary of the loss of an amazing book. So 110 years ago this week, uh, the the Titanic um, sank. And on the Titanic was this incredible jewel-encrusted edition of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. And it was one of the most lavishly decorated books in the world, created by Sangorsky, this master bookbinding craftsman um, in his workshop. Now, I've got to say, I'm a huge fan of bookbinding. So uh, we've actually got the book uh, written by the MD of um, uh, the, the uh, bookbinding company that has bought Sangorsky 
um, company. So the the company is called Shepherd Sangorskin Sutcliffe and Zainsdorf now. And Rob Shepherd wrote this lovely book called Lost on the Titanic. So it was a delight to see uh, the BBC covering the story. So Julian, mm. can I tell you the story? Well, yes, yes, if we've got time. So basically, I think we, I think we have. So the binding was commissioned by a bookseller. And basically, the bookseller said to uh, Sangorski, do it and do it well. There is no limit. Put what you like into the binding, charge what you like for it. The greater the price, the more I shall be pleased, providing only that it's understood that what you do and what you charge for it will be justified by the result. What an amazing commission that must be for an artist or a craftsman to get. Exactly. And how nice to have such deep pockets. Exactly. <laughs> but needless to say, it was magnificent. It was a masterpiece. Had a 1,050 jewels, all specially cut, 100 square foot, so nine square metres of gold leaf. It was bought by an American at auction, went overseas on the Titanic, and needless to say, it presumably is still in its watery grave. Oh. And sadly, the uh, the bookbinder, Sangorski, was drowned just 10 weeks after the loss of the book on the Titanic because he was caught up in a strong current in Sussex. Oh dear. But what's really interesting about the story, because obviously that's an amazing story in itself, mm. but there are some twists left. So some years later, the nephew of uh, of Sutcliffe, who was the, the key bookbinder of the time, he he joined as an apprentice. So he found the original drawings and tooling patterns and decided that what he would do was he would recreate it. So he was probably showing off, showing his uh, mm. his uncle how, how good he was. So he started and it sort of became a, a love project. And he sort of finished it just before World War Two. And in order to keep it safe, because it was pretty amazing, they decided that they would put it in um, a vault, a secure vault in Fourth Street in the City of London to make sure it wasn't destroyed in the Blitz. Sadly, this was one of the first roads to be hit by the German bombers. And when the rubble was cleared, the sheer heat of the fire had melted the leather and charred the pages. And ironically, the office itself, that the road that building the office was in it didn't get hit so that if they just kept it in the office it would have been fine <sighs> it's just bad luck all the way uh, absolutely is it the curse of the book i'm not sure mm. so at the end of the war a third version was um created using the jewels salvaged uh-huh. and it's at the moment that the british library is rarely shown i don't know oh. why well yes i suppose with all those jewels on it um possibly possibly <laughs> Oh, but how interesting. Yes, I mean, really, what what bad luck all the way through to eventually yes. oh, put it in a secure place and then that yes. gets bombed. Yes, oh, Honestly, might as well have kept it in the teapot. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we've, uh, we, as we've mentioned last week, um, the Cookham Festival is, is coming along and there are going to be 40 events. Just to remind you, there are 40 events that are there to amuse and fascinate all of the family. Now, there'll be talks, and there's going to be walks, there's going to be drama, and there's going to be comedy, which is sitting side by side with the famous sculpture garden at the Odney Club. Now, for those budding um, Strictly Come uh, dancing fans, there's going to be dance classes. Now, there's a workshop as well. For those of you who uh, feel they're budding authors, you can develop your skills as a writer and there's also a painting workshop so you can 
take tiddles along and uh, paint tiddles. And then there's a sing-along um, with the music um, from Anything Goes. But for us, of course, the most uh, most fabulous thing is the, is, the, is the spoken word section about books, plays, broadcasting and poetry, which are featuring over the next views. And Heather, I believe, as you said, you've been chatting to Mr. Castell. Absolutely. John Castell, the organiser of the spoken word um, section of the events. Um, I was talking to him just earlier on this week to get more information. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, you're the main organiser for the spoken word in the uh, Cookham Festival. And it's fantastic. And obviously, we're a book programme, so really excited about the, the programmes that you've put together. So tell me, how did you get involved? My wife, Jamie, has been on the Cookham Festival committee previously, uh, where she's helped with the marketing. And a few years ago, a friend of mine said, I, I've written a play and I was just wondering if they'd look at it for me. And cut a long story short, eventually that, that play was performed at the Cookham Festival where it had its premiere in 2015. That went very well. And we actually took it on tour from Cookham Festival. And so that was the first time I'd really got involved in anything of this nature. I've just sort of become involved a little more as time has gone along. One of the things that I, I, I do enjoy is the people I work with, which I think is, is very good. And the, the village community in Cookham, as I say, we don't live there, but we feel as if we almost do. And and that, and that's that's great fun working with people and trying to get together, you know, across various area, uh, segments, not just the spoken word, but music and the visual arts as well. Trying to put together a program which will hopefully appeal... I've got to say, it looks a fantastic programme. So what are you particularly looking forward to this year? That's very difficult, actually, because I'm quite quite pleased with the people we've got. We did have a couple of pop-up events in the autumn, and that was a very good start. Two leading authors in their field, Nick Hornby and Gerald Seymour. So we, we started off well, I think, and hopefully we're going to carry on with you know, the successes of those with some good quality productions. We have some local performers. We have some nationally known figures. And, of course, Cookham being Cookham, you sometimes find that the nationally known performers are also local residents. So, so we're, we're very lucky in that respect. No, I'm just going to give a shout-out to Rob Castell because I've seen him at Norden Farm absolutely fantastic and i've certainly got tickets for that evening as well so i will see you there he has a good friend called robert thorogood it's probably less well known than what he's famous for uh, which is death in paradise that's um, right the television you know, program the ten- that's yeah. on the bbc robert created that some years ago and i think it, i don't know it's eight series now and robert thorogood is a thoroughly nice man a, a very funny man and uh, he'll be very good value and Excellent. he's talking about Death in Paradise and also, of course, his recent novel, The Marlowe Murder Club, based in Marlowe, which is his hometown. So that, that would be a very good evening. Fantastic. So you've obviously teased us saying that they're all good. So give us a couple of suggestions, because what I was surprised about is the breadth of talks. So there's lots of different types of talks. So whatever you're interested in, it looks as though there's yeah. going to be something relevant. So give us a few examples. I mentioned Robert. We, you know, we've got some big names. We start off with Michael Parkinson. Well, what do I say about Mark, Michael Parkinson? I mean, we, you know, he is who he is. He's opening the festival for us on the first night with his, his son. They're fe- effectively reprising the show that they took on tour, where they look at clips from his show, the Parkinson show, and talk about them. 
And that, that's that's very interesting. So we, you know, the, I suppose the big names, for want of a better term, are Sir Michael Parkinson and Robert Thorogood. We've got some, you know, some good comedians from the London comedy circuit as well. A couple of people I'm quite interested in. Fortuitously, they sort of overlap, which was never the intention when we first brought them together for the festival. We have a well-known historian, Judy Summers, who is well-known for her books, which are sort of social histories involving the First and Second World Wars to a large extent. And, and Judy's going to be talking about the uses to which country houses in England were put during the Second World War. So she'll be looking at those, and that, that should be very interesting for people in the locality. Some years ago, Judy was very much involved with a, an exhibition at the Imperial War Museum mm-hmm. uh, called Fashion on the Ration. Quite interestingly, the Imperial War Museum put out a, a piece at the time advertising the, the exhibition, and they said that the exhibition will end with a special installation uh-huh. capturing the thoughts of leading fashion commentators, including the uh, fashion historian Amber Butchart. Right, which you've also got the, at the, the show. The very next evening after Judy is talking about the country houses, we have Amber Butchart, who is coming to talk about the history of fashion, in, in, with particular reference to fashion as a means of communication. Fantastic. Amber will be known to some people as the presenter of a programme called A Stitch in Time on BBC, which looked at some of the great masters and the the clothing by the people in those uh, paintings at the time when they recreated recreated the clothing. We are lucky in in their fields, they are both leading UK people. I think Julie is one of only four women in the Times list of the top 50 historians in the UK. Yes. So so these are are, are hidden gems, if you like. Talking about the BBC, it's of course the centenary of the BBC this year, and there's a couple of talks about the history coming up as well. absolutely. We have Kate Murphy. Kate is a historian. She's also an academic, and she was a senior producer of Women's Hour for many years. Excellent. Uh, so she has an immense inside knowledge of the workings of the BBC. And she is not giving us a sort of very dry history of the BBC. She's looking at it 100 years of the BBC from a female perspective. Ah, excellent. Um, so it's putting a slightly different slant on it. When we, I first spoke to Kate, we talked about her um, speaking to her book called Behind the Wireless which was a history of the early women managers in the BBC back in the... Women played quite an important role in the BBC, actually. It's uh, more so than one would have thought. But then with her background in Women's Hour, the original intention was that we should ask Kate last year, which was when the festival was meant to take place, to actually talk on the subject of Women's Hour because it was the 75th anniversary of Women's Hour, uh-huh. uh, Women's Hour last, last year. Now, now we, we missed that, but fortuitously, it's 100 years of the BBC, so she has extended her, her talk for her second talk, which will be, uh, as I said, the history of the BBC from a female perspective. Fantastic, so yes. The, 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 there are three women there who bring a great deal to the, and I'm really looking forward to those. Fantastic. Now, we've also got some men. And I noticed that Will Will Greenwood, the ex-rugby champion, can I say that, is talking. But not just from a rugby perspective, he's got another angle. 
He does indeed. We have Will and also the co-author of his recent book, Ben Fennell, and they are they are talking about leadership and what they call teamship, what we call teamwork in business and in sport, and what each can learn from the other. Now we all know Will, who, as well as being a local Cookham resident, of course, is a nationally known figure, and. He has worked with, with Ben Fennell over uh, recent years, and Ben has a history of working for one of the major, world's major creative agencies, working with some major brands, helping them build leadership teams, and, and they've done a lot of research into how leadership and teamwork transcends business and sport. I've spoken to many individuals, well-known people in business and sport, and the sporting world, and have come together with, with, with this book, which shows how those two elements can learn from each other. Yeah, uh, yes, I can really see things like uh, mental toughness, for example, is something, yeah, and visualisation that you need in sport is equally appropriate for a business it, life. It's, it's quite fascinating because uh, not not obvious to most of us <laughs> that that's something that you, that you can do and that, that you will have that crossover. You started the, our conversation talking about a play and I know mm. there is a play again associated with Cooking Festival. So tell me a little bit about that. We have um, on the 14th of May, which I'm sure all of your listeners will know, is International Dylan Thomas Day. Of course they will. So we have Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas, being performed in Holy Trinity Church. When the play was first produced, it was as a radio play. It was written as a radio play, as I understand. And we are actually reconstituting a radio studio effect. So it will be like being the audience at the radio theatre. Ah, fantastic. Um, watching the play. And we have two performances by a, a local group with some, some very good performers. And it's, it's, it's good to be to be able to do it on that particular day. Yes, that's fantastic. So so very much looking forward to that. Marvellous. Thank you very much indeed. So before we go, is there one last thing that you want to say? There are many things that we have on on the website. And as you you said, what we try to do is to appeal to a lot of people by looking across the board. We haven't mentioned poetry, for instance. We have a poetry evening. And all I can say to people is that I'd be very disappointed if they can't find something they'd like to see. So hopefully by going to the website, um, www.cookandfestival.co.uk, and having a look at the programme and see if there's something that they'd like to come and have a look at or listen to. Excellent. That's a really good ending statement, and we will certainly encourage that. So that's cookandfestival.co.uk, and the festival is on between May the 6th to May the 22nd. So certainly sounds like there's something for everybody there. So full details of the spoken word events and all the other events, actually. So as, uh, John, as, as uh, Julian was mentioning at the, uh, the beginning of that section, we've got uh, there's, there's dance, there's talks, there's walks, there's music, lots of music. So uh, all the festival events can be found on the website cookhamfestival.co.uk and you can also book tickets directly from the website. Indeed, indeed you can. Now, last week we were talking about the London Book Fair, uh, which resumed um, again after the COVID hiatus and it took place two weeks ago. And Sarah uh, Shafi from The Guardian uh, wrote an article and she's identified what 
the five biggest trends will be for next year. Now, disappointingly, they don't seem to be very much different from the trends of the the, the year before, and no doubt this year. But anyway, here they are. Um, The celebrity-authored fiction. Now, this is on the up and up and up, and the success of Richard Osman, for example, has no doubt inspired a large number of publishers to rush out um, and uh, contact their famous uh, uh, authors or contact to get them to start scribbling away. Now, in addition to uh, Mr. Osman, the Reverend Richard Coles from Radio 4 Saturday Live programme, um, his uh, forthcoming crime book, um, which is a debut, was Murder Before Evensong, is coming out at the beginning of June. And then we have the Strictly Come Dancing judge, Shirley Ballas, joining them with um, a cosy crime genre. And she signed up uh, with HQ to write two novels with Sheila McClure. Now, meanwhile, uh, the musical theatre isn't missing um, uh, from this lineup because Michael Ball is publishing um, a fiction series um, which charts the stories of two families throughout the 20th century via their links to the British theatre. Good, Sam. I'm a bit disappointed about celebrity authored fiction because it seems mm. to me a bit cheating because you have all these amazing authors who are working <laughs> really hard, putting great books out mm. there. And then a celebrity comes along, probably, possibly casting no aspersions, getting a ghostwriter to help them. Yes. And all of a sudden, because they're so famous, it gets all the publicity and it goes straight to the bestseller list. Yeah. And, and all do, the money. And get all the money. And you do mm. wonder why, yeah. when there's yeah. so many other books that are so much better. Yeah, and there are, yes, and there are, there are authors out there. I mean, dare I say it, professional authors. <laughs> um <laughs> And not people, as you say, you know, where writing is their second or third or fourth job, you know. But anyway. You just think they're being a bit greedy. Yes. Anyway, uh, books, another, the next sort of trend uh, coming on is books about the Ukraine are in demand. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's no surprise. Given the war, we're on the lookout for things that will help us understand Ukrainian-Russian relations. And uh, during the uh, London Book Fair, the president of the Ukrainian Publishers and Booksellers Association pre-recorded a video for the uh, for the fair, and he urged companies to support Ukrainian publishers by donating paper and money, as well as buying rights to publish Ukrainian authors. Now, I've got to mm. say, I support that initiative. I think that's yes. a, a great thing to do. So we have a few family memoirs coming up, and. Um, and books about future wars, and also, of course, about the current Ukraine, Ukraine conflict. So we'll be needing to look out for those. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, certainly uh, something to, um, to support. But, you know, it is quite interesting. I mean, for example, Harville Press, um, which is one of our great publishers, is a very uh, adept at picking up excellent European authors uh-huh. uh, and then translating them. So fingers crossed, they'll they'll jump into the fray too. Excellent. Now, readers with appetites um, for new versions of popular and also uh, obscure tales from Greek and uh, Roman times, uh, it's limitless. I mean, people really are always searching for this. Um, with books from Madeline Miller's uh, Circe to Camilla Shamsi's Home Fire, being both commercial and critical successes. Now, the latest author to join the fray 
interestingly, is Life of Pi's author, Jan Martel. Um, he, as you uh, probably are aware, is a Booker Prize winner with one of the most successful wins with Life of Pi. And he's about to publish Son of Nobody, which is a retelling of the Trojan War with um, what I dislike, but it's called A Modern Twist. Right. And that's coming out in 2024. Now, unlike Homer's version, which focuses on nobles and kings, this version reveals the story of an unsung hero, uh, Soas um, of Medea, the son of a goat herd. Uh, he's a commoner who leaves his wife and children behind in order to help Menelaus get his beautiful wife back. Well, that's something I'm sort of, I support actually. Jan Martel, obviously, fantastic author. And mm. I do love these retellings of Greek myths. In fact, I've got, uh, I'm reading at the moment, uh, Pat Barker's The Woman of Troy. Um, oh, yes. That's, that's just come <clears> out. <throat> so that was a follow-on from The Silence of Girls, which talks mm. about the Trojan War from a female perspective. So that's mm. a great way of really looking at the story uh, so I'm thoroughly thoroughly enjoying and enjoying that yeah. um, women's stories generally are getting darker so among many of the big deals at the London Book Fair that were announced there were a number of novels about women in dark and desperate situations possibly reflecting current discussions about women's health and safety so the nursery, for example, this is by literary agent Slizavi uh, Mol- Molnar, is about a woman who begins to lose her grip of time after giving birth. Whilst there's um, um, there's another book by Christina Dacker's Four, and that's um, again about women's stories getting darker. So... Um, Oh, I'm sorry. So in historical fiction as well, we've got The Witching Tide by Margaret Mayer, which is inspired by true events of 1645, following a woman, a woman who becomes a witness to a witch hunt. Um, and there's lots of sort of high concept thrillers out there about death and disaster befalling women. Right, gosh. Well, and uh, interestingly, self-help books are also taking a new re- a new relevance, if you like. Uh, publishers are, are hoping readers will turn to books to help offset the anxieties of modern living, um, particularly with the soaring cost of um, living that is, 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 is about to envelop us, including massive utility bills, um, including mine I got the other day for oh 400, £440. Pounds, and what, does, you know? what is it normally? Well, that's about 150. My goodness. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. So we'll, so all these self-help books are going to help us. And among those uh, books announced at the fair uh, were wintering author Catherine May's Enchantment, Reawakening Wonder in an Anxious Age, which is about nourishment through reconnection. Now, and uh, we mustn't forget that um, super um, superhero author of Hay House, Vex King, he and his wife, who is um, a beauty influencer, um, uh, Kaushai Moda, have written together the greatest self-help book, brackets, is the one written by you, close brackets, and includes six months of prompts to help readers forge their own paths towards self-love. Oh, that sounds quite a good idea, mm, actually. Yeah. When I was in um, India, I was editing a business book, and it was about 90 days for creativity. And the whole idea was that every every day there would be a little... Um, <clears throat> little task to do that would mm-hmm. help you expand your creativity when, ah. you're, when you're at work. So I can see this is very similar. And I've got to yeah. say that was a huge success. Mm. So, um, and 
Vex King. He is just a king of he is. authors and self-help. His, his yes. books sell millions. It, they do indeed, yes. <laughs> Whenever you look at the self-help section in yeah. the Sunday Times King, bestsellers, yes. 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 Vex King, yes. Vex King, <laughs> Vex King. <Yes. laughs> You're listening to Turning Pages here on River Radio. Good morning to you. And we're going to move on and we're going to talk about spring. Now, it's a beautiful sunny day out there um, and seasons are often used in book titles and with spring bursting out all over the place at the moment, we decided that it would be a theme for our day. Uh, But it was really interesting and I was researching this, that apart from Spring by Alice Smith, which I was mentioned at the top of the programme, which is part of her recent uh, seasonal quartet, there wasn't that many books to choose from. Lots about winter, lots about summer, quite a fair number about autumn, but spring seemed to be quite low on the list. So if you know a great book uh, about spring, then do, do let us know. So it looks as though the books that both Julie and I have chosen, I'm going to say we've been relatively alternative in our choices, I think, Julian, today. What do you reckon? Well, well, I think so, yes. Um, because, well, I've turned to, in fact, actually, I, I, I agree with you. There are some that were in, in, in the list that, um, you know, for example, um, Darling Buds of May, which has been lovely. Um, but I was searching for something that was, 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 was typically spring. And so I've chosen a nonfiction title. And well, I by love, way of, I love, non- I love nonfiction. So that's yeah. great. And, and I think we, it's nice that we do pop some in for, 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 for our listeners. And uh, so by way of the introduction to my book, I have a poem for you all, which was written by that Lakeland master poet, William Wordsworth. Okay, let's listen to this. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft, when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills, and dances with the daffodils. Well, if you haven't guessed it uh, yet, my book is about the daffodil. And the book is called Daffodil, Biography of a Flower, by an Australian author, Helen O'Neill. Now, it's a beautifully illustrated book, uh, book containing lush photographs and beautiful, beautiful watercolour drawings of this most popular and en- enigmatic flower. Now, the daffodil is the true harbinger of spring and never ceases to bring joy, especially seen in a large congregation bursting out of the ground in parks and in meadows in people's gardens and roadside verges with their bright golden trumpets pointing to the heavens, heralding warmer weather to come. Now, 
Whilst the snowdrop is the first flower to be seen in gardens in January, it is a winter flower for all that, whereas the daffodil is the true first flower of spring. And as we've heard, the inspiration of poets, and it's a wonder to scientists, and it's a symbol of love, rebirth, and eternal life. Yes, and it's lovely. It's been lovely seeing all the daffodils. Isn't it? It really is. Bluebells are out. Yes, yes, you've got the bluebells. And of course, you've got the primroses there coming up too. Yes. Yeah, no. And the daffodil, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's a perennial um, of the Amaryllis family and is known variously as the daffodil, the narcissus, and less commonly, the jonquil. Well, that might um, be good for a quiz programme, actually. Yeah, it could be, couldn't it? Now, the, the exact origin of the name narcissus is, 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 is unknown, but it's likely to, to uh, be Greek. And of course, it's the name of that most handsome young man who eschewed the attention of all women in preference to falling in love with his own image, which he saw in a pool of water, and then sat staring uh, at himself for the rest of his life. Now, on the spot where he died, it is said, grew a flower bearing his name, Narcissus. Uh, that's a great Yes, myth. isn't it just? Yeah. And now, by the by, which is interesting, the word daffodil is said to be derived from asphodel, which is, um, which is, which is with it's commonly compared with. Um, now, Helen uh, O'Neill, uh, what I like about this, she, she, she scatters interesting facts throughout the books. You know, she's not only talking about the but, but for example, the daffodil, did you know, was much prized by the Romans as they believed it was a guarantee of passage to the underworld. No, I didn't know that. So what, mm. what happens if you don't die during spring? Then you're stymied, aren't you? Well, yeah, oh yeah, but oh yeah, there's a bit of a bit of a bind, isn't it, really? <laughs> Or, well, I said, yes, and for poor old undertakers, they've only got that to about two or three months where they've got to shovel people into the ground. But there <laughs> we go. Now, Ramses II, um, as well, the great um, pharaoh, reportedly had daffodil bulbs placed on his eyes after death. Cool. Also interesting, yes. Um, now, the, and this is also rather interesting. Helen also mentions that the daffodil is used as a form of currency. Uh, and the, and the Duchy of Cornwall is paid a peppercorn rent annually of one daffodil flower by the Isles of Scilly Wildlife Trust. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? Um, and, and, and did you know that... Um, uh, yeah. The other close relations of the daffodil in the family? No, go on. What are they? Well, it's... Interesting, the leek. Wow. Chives, garlic. So all that onion family. Yep, amaryllis. Yeah. Snowdrops, also member of the family. Yeah, and then I can the, see that. Yeah, and then the Amazon lily. Yep, all the same family. Cool. And... Yeah, and, and in terms of um, in terms of numbers, thirty thousand different daffodil cultivars have been bred into existence over the years, but only a fraction of that number created exists today. Now, one of them that still exists is uh, an interesting one, which is called the Tete Tete, and it's the most popular of the miniature variety. But really interestingly, it is sterile. So, so that's why when I plant them, they never come up the following year. That, that's probably it. But I think you're probably doing something something worse um, than just that. Because, in fact, interestingly, you know, how, if they're sterile, how do they reproduce? Well, every bulb is a clone of the original plant, which in turn was derived from a cross that occurred entirely by accident. But the mystery deepens because no one knows the identity of the parents. 
Oh, how lovely. So tete on tete are those lovely little ones, aren't yes, they? Yes, just... they are. Yes, they, yeah. and, and that, that's the most popular of the miniature yeah. variety. Yeah. Now, I think what, what I think is great and lovely about the book is the, the authors managed to make the telling of a story of a flower, the daffodil, more akin to a detective novel, um, which is a part love story, part historical drama, part botanical research paper. And um, Helen O'Neill's narrative is a progression taking us from superstition and myth to politics to greed to religion to science and thence to redemption and love. And it really is a fascinating and eloquent book and it's well worth the reading. Yes, the book's fantastic called, choice. Sorry, yeah, great yeah, choice. Yeah, thank you. And the, uh, it's called, just to remind you, Daffodil, A Biography of a Flower and it's currently available in hardback, published by Fourth Estate. And I thought just to lead us out of spring, uh, we have another poem, but this time from by Thomas Gray called Ode on the Spring. Great. Ode on the Spring by Thomas Gray. Lo, where the rosy-bosomed hours, fair Venus's train appear, disclose the long-expecting flowers, and wake the purple year. The attic warbler pours her throat, responsive to the cuckoo's note, the untaught harmony of spring, while whispering pleasure as they fly, cool zephyrs through the clear blue sky, their gathered fragrance fling. Where'er the oak's thick branches stretch, a broader, browner shade, where'er the rude and moss-grown beech o'er canopies the glade. Beside some water's rushy brink, with me the muse shall sit and think, at ease reclined in rustic state. How vain the ardour of the crowd, how low, how little are the proud, how indigent the great. Still is the toiling hand of care, the panting herd's repose, yet hark how through the peopled air the busy murmur glows. The insect youth are on the wing, eager to taste the honeyed spring, and float amid the liquid noon. Some lightly o'er the current skim, some show their gaily gilded trim, quick glancing to the sun. To contemplation's sober eye, such is the race of man, and they that creep and they that fly shall end where they began. Alike the busy and the gay, but flutter through life's little day, in fortune's varying coloured rest, brushed by the hand of rough mischance, or chilled by age, their airy dance, they leave in dust to rest. Methinks I hear in accents low the sportive kind reply, Poor moralist, and what art thou, a solitary fly? Thy joys no glittering female meets, no hive hast thou of hoarded sweets, no painted plumage to display. On hasty wings thy youth is flown, thy sun is set, thy spring is gone. We frolic while tis May. Very nice. And of course, Thomas, Cre- uh, Thomas Gray is buried in St Giles's Church in Stoke Poges. I can't hear you, Julian. That's because I had turned my microphone off. <laughs> That's, the <reason> <laughs> That's the reason why. Yes, in fact, actually, whilst I was uh, looking for um, the poem, um, Odin Spring, I then went, oh, I said, I'm going to refresh my memory about elegy on a, um, a, a, a church uh, churchyard. Crikey, it's long, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought, oh, well, that might be quite useful, you know, for a programme. I think it would take the whole hour to read. <laughs> that, that might be useful then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I was reading about a tutor. Uh, so this is, I'm doing some research. 
about an academy um, that was around in the sort of 1770s. Mm. And uh, one of the tutors came along. In fact, it was Joseph Priestley, the oh, famous yes. uh, scientist, uh, discovered oxygen. Um, and uh, anyway, he gave his pupils the, um, the job of writing poetry every, every week um, because it felt it, it, it improved their prose. Ah. So he made them do their essays in poetry, which is quite interesting. Idea. Well, it is because 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 my effort probably said the cat sat on the mat. <laughs> I think you'd have to do a bit better if if Joseph Priestley was your tutor. I can so, tell you, so no gold star for that. Then no, no gold star. <laughs> so the book I've chosen, I've chosen an art book, which is a little bit difficult on the radio. So we're going to have to. Explaining with imagine yes. with words yes. what we do. Yes. And it's David Hockney. Now, hopefully, this is going to be easy because he is probably one of our most influential British artists, one of Yorkshire's greatest exports. And we can probably all envisage his famous sort of swimming pool pictures that he painted whilst living mm. in, in California. So you know you can see you've got the bright blue of the of the pool and you've got green sort of hills mm. behind and then the, the mist and then you've got these two figures. So actually... Uh, he called it Portrait of an Artist, but I think everybody else calls it Pool with Two Figures, mm-hmm. is the one that I'm describing there. And that became the most expensive artwork sold at auction ever by a living artist when it sold for $90 million in New York back in 2018. Now, heavens it has now been overtaken by Jeff Coons, of all people. Oh, yes. Uh, and he sold a piece of work for $91 million. But I think we can give David Hockney the, uh, the kudos there. I think um, so. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So David uh, Hockney has always been an experimental artist. And throughout his career, he's investigated new technologies and different ways to make art. Working with fax machines, first of all. Do fax machines mm. still exist? Well, I think they do, uh, but I think it's probably one of those things that's gone the way of the telex machine, really. It, it's become something that people know about, but they can't quite remember what they do or how to operate them. Yes. <laughs> so I remember when he first started doing things on fax machines that he would do some artwork and then he'd fax it across. And do you remember the early fax machines? They were on paper and all the ink would sort of disappear after a couple of years. Yes, so you could that's never right, read it, yes, it, anything yeah. you'd filed. So that's, I don't know what's happened to all those art pieces of artwork. <laughs> that he's, he's faxed something. And it's, you could just so, see all your money disappearing. Somebody said, I can hear sort of a, a collector's wife saying, and you spent a million pounds on a blank piece of paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So anyway, he's now adopted the iPad and stylist as a sort of modus operandi. And he's just turned 80 and he decided that he'd going to sort, seek out rustic tranquility uh, for the first time. And he wanted a place to watch the sunset and see the change of the season. So when COVID-19 and lockdown struck... It sort of made no difference to his life because he was already there in this sort of centuries-old Normandy farmhouse where Hockney had set up a studio. And he was going to paint The Arrival of Spring. And so I want to talk to you about two books that he's done about spring. So the first is called The Arrival of Spring, Normandy 2020. And it was published last year to accompany a major exhibition at the Royal Academy of Arts. 
And it's 116 of his new iPad drawings showing what was happening around him, around the farmhouse and the the blossom and the birds and the sun. And it's absolutely delightful. And he describes it as capturing the exuberance of nature. Mm. And um, he sort of has this infectious enthusiasm and sense of wonder. And he's been in the public eye for over 60 years, but he sort of is not bothered about critics or even history or what people think of him. So he can just sort of draw what he is fascinated in. And he's fascinated over all the decades in light, in colour, in space, perception, mm. water, trees. And this is all there echoed in in his witness of, of spring. So it's really beautiful. And it's very cleverly, the book also includes an augmented reality feature that allows smartphones to scan the images of the book and it plays a corresponding animation, which oh, is very right. clever. So obviously <laughs> yes. you can't see the... Um, you can't see uh, the exhibition anymore because that's that's now finished, mm-hmm. but you can interact with the book. Lovely. And the second book is Spring Cannot Be Cancelled, which has just been published. And it's based on a wealth of conversations and correspondence between David Hockney and the art critic Martin Gayford. And they're huge long-term friends and collaborators. And um, it also is illustrated by a selection not only of Hockney's unpublished Normandy drawings, but also other paintings by works of Van Gogh, Monet, Bruegel and, and others. And again, it's a celebration of spring. So it's a springboard for ideas about art, about space, time, light, a celebration of um, David Hockney's adoration of nature, his belief that art is rooted in love and his restless gusto for life. So I think uh, David Hockney has much to teach us, not only about how to see, but also about how to live. And, and both of these books are sort of like a precious, a precious gift into the world. Um, so we were actually talking about the Cookham Festival earlier on in the programme. And one of the talks that we didn't mention was actually The Healing Power of Art by oh. Dr. James Fox. So it's really interesting that uh, David Hockney felt that drawing outdoors was an antidote, an antidote to anxiety. Um, and he says that we need art, and I do think it can relieve stress. And of course, the healing power of art is actually talking about how art actually can help us calm down. So that's a really fantastic um talk um, at the Cook and Festival if people mm. want to come along just to show that you just need to take some time out either to be in nature or to look at nature to soothe our souls and obviously looking at paintings about nature is a mm. great way of doing that. Well it is and, and, well, and uh, for example in uh, Winston Churchill I mean, with all the pressures of, of his um, career as a politician uh, took up painting and was quite successful at that and people do it but one thing I just said as a side issue uh, or a side point about David Hockney which I think is absolutely delightful yes. <laughs> he smokes like a chimney yes. and uh, and I think part of the reason why I moved off to France was he could just smoke his head off and, and nobody could be sort of pointing their finger at him and giving comments and I think he was so chatty way well he said that smoke and i think he started smoking at some ridiculously early age and then he said i mean he's he's outlived i think about at least 
three, if not four of his doctors. So he sort of said, so basically, Yabu sucks to you. <laughs> so, and after the, so I just have a vision of him sitting in his garden there in France with a cloud of smoke round him as he's puffing away on his cigarettes, painting away. Um, but he's, and I think, because I think he also said that he was never going back to Oxford because, because Oxford City Council were going to make it a smoke free zone. So he said, that put the tin lid on me going back to Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I bet they are actually because Oxford City Council are, are amazingly strict. They're now banning they, cars from the centre. Yes, yes, I'd heard. Yes, um, and that would be interesting so, con- yes. considering how much yeah, revenue they must get from parking. Uh, you know, a proper parking ticket is not parking fines, but you know, people park on the road. But there we go. But then probably the poor old taxpayer at um, uh, Oxford will have to cough up the difference, won't they? Yes. Anyway, sh- I think you can if you've got an electric car. Oh right, you can still okay. drive, yeah. So this is the mm. whole idea. They ah. push for electric, um, but um, yes. Yeah, so very quickly, I wanted to mention the big jubilee read. Yes, which has been in the paper, and I want to reassure you, we will be covering this in depth because it's a fascinating. Um, it's a pleasure campaign and it celebrates great reads from across the Commonwealth to coincide, of course, with Her Majesty the Queen's Jubilee coming up in June. Yes, indeed. And there's been an expert panel of librarians, booksellers and literature specialists have chosen 70 titles from uh, what they considered reader's choice long list uh, with 10 books for each decade of Her Majesty the Queen's reign. And now the list offers brilliant, beautiful and thrilling writing produced by authors from a wide range of Commonwealth countries over the last 70 years. Um, and they're all there to engage the reader in the discovery and celebration of great books. And needless to say, once you put a list together, people are going to say, oh, I don't agree with that. <laughs> and well. Indeed, because I think next week we might have a little bit of piece, a little piece to add to that about somebody saying, mm, "Well, I don't agree with that." Absolutely, <laughs> this is what yes. I think should go on the list, which think, will be interesting. Yeah, and if, we've all got our own ideas of what our favourite yes. books are, and also yeah. books that represent the community. And um, I don't think they are what uh, the Queen. I don't think the recommendations for the Queen. I understand she likes a good Dick Francis, something with horses. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. She did. Yes. She was very keen, and as her mother before her, I think, were she was keen on Dick Francis novels as well. Yeah, quite right too. Mm. Right, so we're coming to the end of our show today. So uh, books we've been recommending. Uh, Right, yes, so we have um, uh, Ocean Vuong, Time is a Mother, published by Jonathan Cape. Companion Piece by Ali Smith, published by Hamish Hamilton. Daffodil, Biography of a Flower by Helen O'Neill, published by Fourth Estate. From Unforgettable, Rugby, Dementia and the Fight of My Life by Steve Thompson, published by Blink Publishing. Uh, The Arrival of Spring, Normandy 2020, David Hockney, published by Academy of Arts. And Spring Cannot Be Cancelled, again by David Hockney, and it's published by Thames and Hudson. So my very thanks to you for listening, to the Little Bookshop Cookham for sponsoring the show this month. And we really look forward to you joining Julian and I next week on Turning Pages, the River Radio book show that proves great books aren't just from the bestseller list. That's our strapline now, Julian. What do you think? Oh, right. Yes, I think that's very good. I think excellent. 
Good oh. So we air every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and the programme is repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3. And of course, if you're not able to listen during those times or just want to catch up on any of our past programmes, because I know that's a... That's something you all like to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can listen again either directly from our website. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. All you need to do is just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. So thank you very much for joining us. And do when you do listen again, do like our podcast because it really helps. It does. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. (gasps) 